We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Happy Sunday night. Hope everyone enjoyed their lovely day in Cleveland. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about a couple of things. We're going to be talking about COVID, and we're going to be talking about Ukraine versus Russia. Uh, First, talking about Ukraine. What what a time it has been. We've been watching COVID-19. Uh, since the end of 2019, if you could possibly believe that. And then from 2020, 19, we then go into 2020, where we shut everything down, starting in uh, March of 2020. And we lived through 20, 2021, and now we're into 2022. I think we're almost out of it. We've been talking to politicians recently, trying to figure out what's going to happen the next time we have another pandemic like COVID. Uh, we've been watching uh, COVID going on and about now that it's been coming back with different variants. And uh, with those different variants, it's been uh, something to deal with. We started out with the Delta variant, and then we had the uh, omnivirus, omnivirus. And uh, then we're now looking at what they call the BA2, the BA2 variant, which may be coming back. It's going on in Europe. Uh, as well as um, what's going on in Asia at this point. So if that comes back, we're going to see what happens. But this really rocked our government and our economy. We didn't know how to handle that that, that whole pandemic thing. Uh, Pulled the kids out of school probably was the worst thing that happened uh, to to the children who had to be out of school and learning how to learn remotely from home and uh, wondering what's all happening with uh, with that. So COVID is with us still. It's still around. We've been hearing of cases recently where individuals still at this time, we're in March, still getting COVID. Uh, one person I was talking to just uh, the last couple of weeks came down with COVID, fully vaccinated, fully boosted, and with the booster and with the vaccination ended up still getting COVID and developed uh, what uh, SARS and COVID are famous for, and that's creating blood clots in the lungs, which happened to him. He developed what they call a pulmonary embolist and ended up having to uh, go back to uh, the hospital and be put on oxygen and recover from it. So uh, he's doing well, uh, talking to him the other day, and he was still having some shortness of breath and some pain in his left side, that kind of thing. So COVID is nothing to mess around with, but we've been watching the fact that uh, people have been doing without uh, face masks and been seeing that more and more, and people have been going out acting free. So we'll see what happens. I heard some uh, discussion that the BA2 variant of COVID is uh, multiple times uh, more contagious than the other variants. So we'll see what happens, but uh, we've also heard along the same line that the boosters and the vaccines 
have been still working to some degree against the variants. So if you do have all your boosters, you have your vaccinations, and you do come down with COVID, you're going to end up uh, hopefully not having a severe case of it. One can only hope. But uh, with COVID doing its thing, uh, the economy is still recovering and compounding the economic uh, problems that we had. We now have the uh, Russia-Ukraine problem going on where the Russians are invading Ukraine, causing uh, essentially a, an armed conflict of a large, large uh, degree. And as we're recovering our economy from COVID, we're now seeing things happening because of the, the oil prices globally and, and so forth. So uh, as far as what, what's happening next with COVID, I think you know, who's going to say? But hopefully people are getting back to normal, as we said. Restaurants uh, are slowly coming back, but sort of a unique thing has been happening with restaurants and other service companies. They're having a hard time employing people, getting people to come back to work and fill uh, the slots to have people act as servers and cooks and everything. So there's some restaurants we go out to and we don't even don't even know they're there anymore because they're not. They, they're out of business. Hopefully they'll come back as the economy gets better and hopefully the economy will get better. And uh, all we can do is hope, hope and pray that that happens. The Ukrainian situation, of course, is uh, a nightmare. Uh, watching that every day. I hope you're not getting too depressed about it. But uh, as we see what's happening, the hardship and the amount of uh, destruction that's going on, we, we get into the question of what in the world are the Russians doing? Uh, we start out with the fact that is this an armed conflict that is fought according to other armed conflicts? In other words, uh, is this a, a war that is being fought pursuant to the rules of the Geneva Convention? The Geneva Conventions, uh, of course, have been around for, for years and basically tell us what the laws of war are. And the laws of war somehow try to restrict or control how war is fought so that we have at least some agreed-upon humanitarian rules. And uh, with regard to those humanitarian rules, uh, the, the question comes up, uh, what are humanitarian rules that apply to war? war? War is so nasty, it is so dangerous, it is so violent, people get killed in war, and that's the whole point of war, is to see who can kill the most. But we um, have rules that everyone is supposed to agree to, and that is to not target civilians, not target hospitals, not target children, and yet we see that all happening here. Uh, in, in Ukraine at this point. And the question is, well, why is that happening? We're not getting any reasons out of it, but we do know that the United States is in a situation with the NATO alliance that uh, has a two-edged cutting sword type of a thing. And with that, we have on the one hand, uh, if anyone attacks any NATO country, it's a declaration of war against all the NATO members, including the United States. But yet on the other hand, uh, where we don't have anyone wanting to step over the line. Everyone is standing back, not wanting to be the first one to cause the war. So you know, we are right there at this point watching what's happening, and over the next few weeks we'll see what happens. What's going on with the uh, Russians at this point is anyone negotiating with them. And if we're talking about negotiating with the, the Russians, we're 
we're talking about trying to find out what are their goals in Ukraine and what uh, will they be agreeing to? And will there be a ceasefire? Will there be a no-fly zone? These questions are all up in the air, but in the meantime, while those questions are up in the air, we have people still dying on both sides, apparently. Uh, the Ukrainians are fighting uh, the Russians, and there are many deaths on the Russian side from what we're hearing, as well as what's happening over on the Ukrainian side. And we have civilians and military people being uh, killed and wounded in, in that side. And as we're watching what's going on with uh, what's happening in the uh, Ukraine, we're, we're watching this mass exodus. Ukraine, a country before this started of 44 million people, is a modern, you know, shows a modern-day evacuation of people trying to get out of a war zone. And uh, Ukrainians for the last three or four weeks now have been trying to get out of Ukraine into, among other places, Poland, where they have, I think, around two million uh, refugees over there already. So it's really kind of, um, oh, just a uh, an interesting thing that we feel like we're just sort of watching what is going on and we're spectators. So, you know, to see what is uh, happening there is kind of an amazing thing. The uh, the thought with regard to what's going to be happening over the next weeks uh, in this country, so far what's happening is we're watching the oil prices go up. We're watching the economy get uh, basically affected by what's going on in the international markets and uh, see what what's going to happen at that point. And uh, we, we shall see. The, uh, the thought is... Uh, How's the stock market going? We noticed over the last couple of uh, weeks, the stock market since Ukraine started to be a war zone started to drop uh, a lot and lose a lot of value. And hopefully it's coming back at this point uh, to some degree and hopefully it will stabilize, but things can change just in uh, 24 hours as to what's going on. So if we haven't talked about enough problems with regard to Ukraine and Russia, we still have the the Russians with their nuclear weapons and uh, whether or not they're going to be deploying any tactical nuclear weapons and ratcheting this whole war up another level. So it's going to not be a good thing. So we'll see uh, what happens. But we'll be back. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In uh, this segment, we're talking about COVID-19, where are we now, and how that's uh, combining along with what's going on in uh, uh, Russia as they're attacking uh, Crimea, well, not Crimea, but they're uh, fighting over in um, Ukraine. The, uh, the, the problems we're having with that are amazing, but... One of the things I wanted to mention is that we are taking now email uh, information and questions. And if you want to communicate with us right here in the studio, you can send an email to the Advocate Radio, the Advocate Radio at gmail.com. And uh, we'll, we'll try to get your question uh, on the air from there. And we have a couple of emails already. So let me take a look at what we have here so far. One question. Um, 
Do you think the U.S. will get involved in the war between Russia and Ukraine in the coming weeks or months? Uh, you know, looking at history, uh, they say history does repeat itself, and uh, it certainly seems to be repeating itself here. We have a European war on that has a potential for spreading out to a whole bunch of countries. And uh, with that war spreading out, we have the United States uh, 5,000 miles away over on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean wanting to stay out of it and uh, don't want to stumble into a war or do something that will get uh, Putin to expand the war to the United States. But uh, when you ask about the United States position is what happened in other wars. World War One, we stayed in isolationist early on. World War Two, we did the same thing until Pearl Harbor was attacked and we got into that war. So the question is, do you think the United States is going to get into the war inevitably? Is it going to expand? With the NATO uh, agreement, we have uh, countries like uh, Poland, that if the Russians would attack Poland, that would be considered an attack on the United States and uh, the remainder of the 30-some countries that are members of NATO. And suddenly we'd be in a a stepped-up war. We don't know what the Chinese are going to do with the Russians. That's another issue as to uh, whether or not they're going to be providing equipment or supplies or, or, I doubt, forces, but anything can happen. Wars, once they start, they say wars are easy to start, but very difficult to stop. And uh, I think as we're, we're holding back and everyone is somewhat holding back, hopefully the uh, Russians will negotiate with uh, whoever the agent's going to be to argue on behalf of Ukraine to uh, settle this war, at least stop the, uh, the battles until we can have negotiations and find out what is going on. But uh, in any event, we have another, another question what are your thoughts about the fourth vaccine that may be available soon? Well, that's interesting. I have heard about a fourth vaccine that, uh, that is being talked about, and it's a vaccine that would be the fourth vaccine in the chain of what's been three vaccinations so far. <clears throat> uh, we've had um, the Pfizer and the Moderna requiring two uh, vaccinations, and then one booster. So that would be three shots. And the question is, will we need another booster or a total of four shots? So what seems to be happening here is that as the vaccine, uh, the viruses or the virus continues to spread around through the population, the virus also not only spreading through the population is continuing to, to change in its uh, makeup and you're coming up with different variants of it. So the, the question is, will that have any bearing on whether you need a fourth vaccination? What I hear is the reason for the need for a fourth vaccination is that the last vaccination, the booster for most people, uh, after about uh, four to six months starts wearing off. So it's really a decrease in the effects of the immunization that you get from that vaccination, that would require another one. So we're waiting to hear whether that is going to be happening or not. And another question. Uh, keep in mind, shoot your questions over to the advocate radio at gmail.com. Here's a question. Um, 
I see advertisements of all kinds of helpful drugs, noticing that all disclaimers and warnings. I don't see anything about the vaccines. How does this information get out to the public? You know, I was talking to somebody else about that uh, about a week or two ago. And uh, if you buy any over-the-counter drug at the drugstore or you buy a prescription drug from your pharmacist and you open up the little box and pull out the little container of pills, uh, there'll be a, a folded-up tissue-thin paper folded up about 20 times that you have to unfold and open up to a, a large size, two-sided, single-spaced, small-print uh, piece of paper that tells you everything you wanted to know about that particular drug you're going to take. And when I look at that, the most important things I look at is, one, what is it for? And it uh, will tell you specifically what that drug is for. And uh, it sometimes will tell you how it works. But the most important thing, it tells you what to watch out for. What are the contraindications of taking this drug or this medication? Uh, what would uh, interact with it that can cause an interaction that would be a problem? And uh, whether or not you should call your doctor if you're having any of these side effects. And how bad are the side effects? Can you live, what's better, the side effects or... Actually, the, is it better to have the you know, curative uh, elements of the, of the drug you're taking? So it's really kind of a, an interesting thing that with the, all the vaccines, I haven't seen any of those, those papers that tell you everything about it. If they're out there, uh, I'd like to see one to find out what, what we're all up against. But pretty much uh, because of what has happened with the uh, COVID-19 and all of its variants is that uh, I just think about the pictures back in 2020 of all the refrigerated uh, trailers that were parked outside of hospitals acting as temporary morgues, scaring the heck out of everybody. And uh, there's no problem with it scaring somebody if you're entitled to be scared by the whole thing, which, which I think we were. But now as we're taking the vaccines, the question comes up back to the original question, are we going to be having a fourth vaccine? And then the question will be, will you take it? Will you, you take the, uh, the vaccine? And uh, so I guess the, the question would be is, have you had a reaction to the earlier shots that you've had if you've had three already? Which is an interesting question. So we'll see how that, uh, that would possibly work, work out with that. Uh, so we're watching for more emails. So if you have an emailed question or comment, just email it out here to the advocate, the advocate radio dot or the advocate radio at gmail dot com. The uh, other thought we had with regard to uh, what's going on with the vaccines is that um, are we going to have to go back through virtual schools and so forth again, and we're going to have to shut down the government again? shut down restaurants and go out to social distancing. Uh, so far, there's no talk of that. Uh, and it seems like the people who've been coming up with the recommendations as to how to act and, and how to protect ourselves have set up at least a, a theory and a procedure that most people have been following. And they learned a lot of stuff. One thing I heard about was early on, uh, the experts were saying that we have to use a lot of sanitizer, have to wipe everything down, that the virus is spread by surface contact. And uh, pretty much, I think, uh, as Dr. Fauci just said today, that they're finding out now that, well, that's not the case. 
cases really it's an airborne spread virus, so that's what to be careful of. So uh, I suppose with summer coming up and people being outside more often, we're going to be out and about and separated from people, people who are exhaling viruses and other bacteria and viruses from their lungs, that we won't be cooped up in small places like we are in the winter time. So the closer we get to summer, I think the better things are going to be. But uh, for the time being, it's sure great having the feeling that our freedoms are back and life is getting back to normal. I just can't believe it's 2022. We, we gave up all of 2020, and we gave up all of 2021. And uh, I think everybody's just so exhausted from the whole experience. Not to mention how young children have missed two years of normal development and socialization and education and uh, just being relaxed, comfortable, and, and playing the way that we know kids should be able to play. So as, as far as what's going to happen with uh, these children who half of their lives are spent in uh, not just quarantine but in isolation because of the COVID, we'll see what happens to them and what kind of unique problems we're going to be dealing with with our families over the future. So the, again, this... Uh, Something, you know, years past. Remember how boring things were? Let's go back to 2018, 2019. And we were just dealing with the typical things in life, like where are we going to go for spring break or summer vacation? Uh, does everyone have a job? What, what's the stock market doing? It seems over the last two years, two point, going on 2.5 years maybe, uh, that we've had things that have been really uh, upside down and how people are going to uh, settle out with that. So, uh, in any event, I have another question that came in here. I don't know if we're going to have time to uh, answer it. Holland says, Quinn Gang, the Chinese ambassador to the United States, said Sunday that China would not send weapons and ammunition to support Russia's war in Ukraine, and that Beijing would do everything to de-escalate the crisis. Well, that's a good thing. Let's, let's hope they... <laughs> Let's hope there's some hope there that China will be able to do that. Uh, I, I just hear that China is too closely aligned to Russia, but uh, maybe they'll be able to pull everyone back into a stable situation, stop the killing, and we'll uh, go go from there. So with that, um, we're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with Dr. Eli Kahl, Kahl from Kent State University. He's a professor of political science who studied in Ukraine and has um, a lot of answers for us as far as what's going to happen. We'll take a short break. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, tonight, in the next two segments, we're going to be talking uh, about the uh, situation going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. That's been going on for almost a month. And uh, to talk to us about it, we have a professor from Kent State University, Department of Political Science, who has studied Ukraine and Russia. And uh, is going to shed some light for us on what's that relationship and what might be happening. With us tonight is Dr. Eli Call. Uh, Dr. Call, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, my, my pleasure. We seem to uh, hit right on a topic that you have a bit of expertise on. Uh, I understand you just... Um, completed recently your Ph.D. thesis and awarded a Ph.D. in political science. What was the subject matter of that thesis? 
Uh, my dissertation was on the evolution of the security services of Ukraine, uh, looking at institutional change in the post-Soviet security apparatus, uh, essentially investigating what happened to the KGB uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And uh, so that involved several trips to and from Ukraine, uh, speaking with academics, experts, political figures, journalists, uh, and uh, conducting some archival research as well while I was there uh, to get a better understanding and develop uh, a clear knowledge of how the security services in Ukraine uh, have evolved into something very similar to a pro uh, 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 modern Western security service like we have in the United States or in Europe in general. Uh, a question that came to my mind was that after the 91 fall of the Soviet Union, uh, we ended up with a number of KGB-type agents uh, working in the intelligence and security services in Ukraine. I would assume that they would switch over from being Soviet agents to now being Ukrainian agents. Is that what happened, or were they recalled back to Russia, or what, what happened with, say, the, the hundreds of people working for that uh, that agency. So that's a very good question. It was actually uh, it actually depended on where they originated, and they were given uh, the opportunity to choose whether or not they went back to. So you have to remember the Soviet Union comprised of fourteen separate republics that split up, and so once it's no longer a state, there were KGB operatives in Ukraine who were from. Uh, as far away as Irkutsk or Vladivostok and the Pacific coast of Russia. Uh, and so it's a lar large part depended on where they originated from, uh, whether or not they wanted to go back to their... So if they were from Uzbekistan, for example, uh, they might have chosen to go and work for the Uzbek Security Service. Or a large portion of them went back to Russia and the Russian Federation just because the opportunity was perceived of as greater at least from a financial standpoint, to uh, stay in the security field and uh, just move to the Russian Federation. And then a larger segment of the former KGB operatives uh, actually went into the private sector, and especially during the 1990s uh, when the privatization efforts to uh, privatize several of the formerly state-owned enterprises of the Soviet Union led to the development and cultivation of a community of oligarchs. Uh, these oligarchs needed some strongmen and some security experts to help protect them and their interests in what became known as the Wild Wild East. And so uh, the, a, a large portion of the KGB in Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere uh, went into the private sector. Uh, a lot of them actually had their own uh, businesses and enterprises that they set up themselves. And so uh, they, they kind of stand out all over the spectrum. But several of them did remain within the political and security apparatus of Ukraine. You know, going from 1991 to present, uh, and we watched the independence of Ukraine and, of course, uh, the independence of Russia, uh, were, were they ever, right after the breakup of the Soviet Union, were they ever uh, parallel or close to one another, or do they begin with um, hostilities or at least a hostile 
redirection on either part, heading in opposite directions. It was actually quite a um, fraternal, if not very affectionate kind of bond between the two, um, depending on who you were. So if you were a Soviet hardliner at the time, uh, you might have some initial uh, distrust or disconsternation with the Ukrainian state because Ukraine was one of the uh, major pillars in the collapse of the Soviet Union when the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Republic declared its independence from the Soviet Union. That was kind of the, the, the breaking point, at which point several other republics, I mean, it wasn't the first uh, country to withdraw from the Union, but it was kind of the the signposts that indicated that the union was indeed going to collapse. Uh, ironically, Ukraine declared its independence on the same day or at the same time as uh, the Chechen Republic did. And Chechnya, as many of you will know, is part of Russia now. Uh, Chechnya's attempt at independence did not succeed, whereas Ukraine's was pretty well thought out and 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 well-recognized by the Russian Federation as well as the international community uh, as an independent state. And, and so... Yeah, the, Go ahead. Uh, so so the, the period early in the 1990s was actually quite affable between the two countries. Um, the, the, there was a lot of collaboration and uh, economic uh, codependence between the two countries for quite some time. Is there a longing now or a sort of a draw to bring the former Soviet uh, states to, to come back together again in a Soviet-style union? Is that what's driving Putin? Uh, I don't think that that's what the states, the former Soviet states would like, uh, but there is argument to be made that President Putin is seeking to at least rein in parts of the former Soviet Union to, to attempt to make Russia great again, to, to make, to kind of reestablish the power that, the geopolitical power that the Soviet Union once had. And in doing so, that means either gaining some level of political control over former Soviet republics, such as Belarus or Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan, or reigning in uh, seemingly more independent and west lean, westward-leaning uh, former Soviet republics like Ukraine and Georgia, and in particular uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Baltic states, uh, who are currently NATO members, not just U European mm -hmm. Union members. Um, and, and so I don't think that, I think it would be very lofty on his part to aspire to retake those countries, but being able to install a pro-Russian government in countries like Ukraine and Georgia and, uh, and Kazakhstan provides this kind of neo-Soviet Union power base that President Putin could act on. Mm. It, it, it appears that uh, with the lead-up to this uh, invasion of Ukraine that the Russians took their time and were deliberate and open about building their forces up on the eastern border of Ukraine and on the north and of the south. And and the question appeared to be that the Russians were going to be rolling into Ukraine 
And we didn't know. It's like reading a book and you're not jumping ahead to read what happens next. Uh, is that it was almost like the Russians were expecting to just roll in and have the keys to Ukraine handed over to them. Uh, that That's not happening. But was that really a surprise to Putin and the Russians? I, I, I think that it was a surprise to Putin. Um, I don't necessarily think it was something that he was unprepared for. I think that he had contingency plans, but I do, I do believe he did not expect it. I know people who study the former Soviet Union who were shocked and are shocked by the the level of resistance that the Russian forces have met um, in in their recent invasion of Ukraine. And the uh, I, I think that one thing that I want to correct you on a little bit is that it wasn't as clear, at least in the minds of the Russian people, that the troop buildup that we saw along the Ukrainian border was aimed at Ukraine or at toppling the Zelensky government in Ukraine. Uh, it was more framed, at least by the Putin administration, as uh, exercise in uh, uh, military exercises with Belarus, as well as um, military posturing to uh, convince Ukraine to stop uh, its incursions into the independent republics of what Putin, or what Putin then called the independent republics of Donetsk and Lugansk in East Ukraine. Um, well, let's hold, let's hold that yeah. thought because we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Eli Call from Kent State University, Department of Political Science, uh, who has studied extensively uh, Ukraine uh, over the past uh, years. We're going to be back with uh, Dr. Call. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're being joined tonight by Dr. Eli Call from Kent State University, Department of Political Science, uh, who studied specifically uh, Ukraine and Russia and talking to us about what's going on now in that part of the world. Uh, Dr. Call, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. You know, when we were just talking about uh, expectations and what was supposed to be done, I think initially when the Russians moved into Ukraine, it was like they were going to take over maybe and stop at those eastern provinces or jurisdictions and, and stop there. Was it uh, something that people were expecting that he'd go beyond and attack the entire country as a whole? And two parts to that question. The second part, what's the end game for the Russians at this point when they're trying to subjugate 44 million people? I think that the end game has to be one of those factors that President Putin uh, has to change his mind about um, because they're knowing the Ukrainian people as, as well as I do, anyone who just visits Ukraine will get a sense that following the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, the people of Ukraine are willing to lay down their lives to protect their democracy and their sovereignty. And any occupation of, even if Russia were to capture Kiev, the level of insurgency that would exist, coupled with the international sanctions facing the Russian Federation at the moment, would make maintaining control over that territory untenable. 
And so it would really, it, for Putin to save face in any regard at this point, he would have to lower his aspirations uh, in terms of what he would consider uh, as a uh, a breaking point. And, and to speak on your first part of that question, uh, my initial assessment was that he was aiming to create a land border between territorial Russia and the Crimean, the land border of the Crimean Peninsula um, as well. I thought he was going to aim at those eastern territories, but then the attacks were coming from all over as far nor- in the far north near Chernev, uh, as well as the uh, second largest city in Ukraine, uh, right near the border of Russia and Kharkiv. Uh, the level of the invasion was one of the things that surprised me, actually. And But at the same time, it, the reason it surprised me wasn't that it was occurring and that the Ukrainians were fighting back. I was surprised that Putin miscalculated in that regard, because uh, I, at that time, me and several of my colleagues who I've been speaking with in Ukraine understood that the, the level of defensive capability of the people on the ground there, they've been fighting a war for eight years already. And they, they know the territory, they're defending their homeland, and they have the moral, uh, the, 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 the moral capa- morale to uh, successfully uh, at least forestall the initial invasion. Uh, so it, mm-hmm. it was qu- qu- quite a bit of a shock when he did not just focus on the eastern part of Ukraine. Well, when we, we talk about the, the war going on for eight years, now that here in this country, in the United States, we're, we're watching it on multiple channels 24-7, every move that's going on. And it, it seems clear at this point, as being reported, that the Russians are uh, ignoring the laws, the international laws of armed conflict or the laws of war. And uh, they're targeting civilians, they're, uh, civilian residences, uh, civilian uh, groups, and... Um, has this been going on for the eight years? Uh, is this a surprise that the Russians uh, are not doing it? And, and why is that? Because the Russians are part of the United Nations. We thought the Russians were civilized uh, to the point where they would be respecting the laws of armed conflict. But what's happened here? Why the complete ignoring of those rules? Um, I think that there's a level of desperation, but there's also a precedent of success. Uh, this is not the first time Russia has abandoned the laws of armed conflict and humanitarian law. Uh, if we think back to Russia's involvement in Syria over the past seven years, uh, the hospitals were bombed and, 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 and specifically targeted in uh, Russia's attempt to keep the Assad regime in control of Syria. Um, if we think about the... Uh, events of the Chechnyan, the second Chechnyan war um, that lasted until the early 2000s, uh, the tactics that were used in kind of, it was an internal conflict between Russia and a, a separatist republic at the time. Um, but the tactics and, and the, the types of uh, warfare that were being implemented by the Russian Federation also seemed to have indicated a willingness to violate the rules of war um, in order to obtain a uh, strategic advantage over the opponent. Well, well, in doing that, aren't they giving up their uh, f- favorable uh, uh, reputation amongst the community of states and world opinion 
who recognizes most states, and I mean nation states, recognize the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, and the humanitarian uh, needs of the civilian populations and the refugee problems they're causing uh, as being something that every sophisticated uh, state should follow. And we, we thought Russia was there. They seem to abandon that in a big way. I, I, I think that one of the things that can, one of the critiques of the international community in general can be that by not being as heavy-handed and standing up in a unified way like we have been in the past three weeks uh, against Russia's actions, uh, it's not necessarily that Putin thought that he could get away with it, but it's that he thought he could get away with it without really meaningful punishment. Uh, so I don't think I, I think that the reason why this inhumane act, this inhumane action is viewed as a, a feasible tactic on the part of the Russian military is the fact that the West and the rest of the international community hasn't stood up in any meaningful way to prevent them from doing so, or, or at least uh, uh, create an alternative uh, that makes them second guess whether or not they should. And so I think that it's quite possible that President Putin thought the West wouldn't mind or would maybe give him a slap on the wrist or sanction more of the Russian companies, but not necessarily go to the extent that the West has uh, seemingly been intent on going in the uh, mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. Big, big question uh, with not much time to answer. I have a couple of minutes. Uh, when, when we look at uh, Putin, I know we keep using the name President Putin, 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 uh, but he has several circles. He has a circle of uh, his in, intelligence and military leadership uh, taking care of and advising him, I presume, on the military tactical issues. Uh, we have the oligarchs with regard to the economic issues that are that are coming up that may be of somewhat of a surprise based upon the unanimity of, of the world. Um, how, how strong is Putin now with regard to, say, just those two circles of supporters, the, the military and the oligarchs, as far as how things are going? They, they seem to be going not well from, from what I see. So uh, to speak on the military and security uh, circle, uh, this is a group of individuals uh, in our field we know as the Siloviki, the uh, former KGB officers, many of them, or former Soviet uh, military personnel who evolved into this cronyism uh, under Putin in his early tenure as president uh, to maintain this kind of almost organized crime-like hierarchy um, and in within this inner circle, we also see some infighting going on right now. Um, a few days ago, the head of the FSB, the Russian Security Services, the successor organization to the KGB, um, the head of the international uh, intelligence wing of the FSB was arrested, put under house arrest for uh, alleged corruption and uh, providing false information. And then just recently, I think over the past 24 hours, uh, the head of the Interior Ministry, uh, the National Police, was uh, arrested by the FSB under similar charges. So I think one thing that that might demonstrate is kind of some infighting going on between the Siloviki uh, 
possibly because trying to put blame on one another. Because what's been clear is that Putin's inner circle at the moment has not been providing him with uh, as detailed and accurate information as possible, which is what one of the things that led to his miscalculation. I don't think that. Oh well, let's let's hold it there. Uh, we're we're out of time, but. Uh... Uh, Dr. Call, thank you so much. We'll have to have you on again because there's just so many issues and this is such an important topic right now. But uh, Dr. Eli Call from Kent State University, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, not a problem. Thank you, and I'd be happy to come on again. We'll have you. Thank you. And thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, happy, safe, and healthy week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea